That's your t-shirt now, don't I? This is the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast. Lucas, Grizzly Forge. Somebody. Josh, just met. Yeah. Montana Knife Company. Awesome. This is the way I like to kick this off. This is a coffee company. How do you take your coffee? Black. Just black. You know I'm lying because you watched me just, you watched how I just got it. A little bit of cream. Splash. Just a splash. Do you know the coffee business is actually more of the milk business? It's probably true, actually. It is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. My wife usually fills about her coffee about half full of milk. Yep. More of a milk business. Yeah. Lucas, what about you? I know we've had coffee a lot, but I've never paid attention. Um, When I'm home or camping black, because I like to make pour overs here, Mm. when it's easy, I like to do a caramel latte. Caramel latte. Get my get my white girl on. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes spice it up with a frappuccino if I'm feeling dirty. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we, um, we got a fancy damn coffee maker here recently. My wife had been talking about one for like two years and I finally caved on it because I just like my coffee just pretty black and pretty normal. And then she got this Jura. And yeah, yeah. Uh, it makes all the fancy stuff, you know, and I kind of got hooked on the lattes and that thing, but I turned the milk way down. Hers milk runs for I don't know. You can go take a shower and still run in milk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a jury at the spare house. I'm, I Is just it? got educated on it. Yeah. It gets real finicky it's when something's actually, dirty. Honestly, it's pretty damn good coffee. I mean, it does a pretty good job. It does. I just do the espresso thing It's, a it's times. nice to just come out and just push the button. Quick Americano. Super rad. Yeah. Yeah. Super rad. However, that thing was down hard because there was no, something in the filter, like the water thing has like a proprietary filter like thing. Spaceship. Yeah, that's what I call it. Space coffee. <laughs> yeah. like space bear. Little, we call that the space. The spaceship is espresso maker down the lab. Oh, that thing is beautiful. Ooh, it's so nice. That's a piece of art. And it looks like a Tesla with that screen on it. And like all the LEDs down the side <laughs> and everything. Yeah, yeah, that's we, awesome. We were out at Everly Stock last weekend at the ranch out in the middle of kind of nowhere in Idaho. And, but I had my little pour over there with my jet boil and my black rifle coffee. And it was like, I don't know if there's better coffee, even if it's, there isn't. Even if it's mm-hmm. bad, it's still like there's nothing better than waking up in the morning in your tent and boiling your coffee and a little hand grinder. And it's the best, man. Especially everybody's the- looking at you like, where'd you get that? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> on the jump trip, it became a thing. Like somebody wanted a coffee, wasn't super into it. I'm like, that's really good, actually. I was using AeroPress. Yep. Every single day, I ended up out on the picnic table, you know, between jumps in yep. Eloy with the hand grinder. And uh, just make a little coffee. Every morning we were hunting together uh, last year in Arizona, Logan Stark, and we were at Big Chino down there hunting. And the guide would be like, all right, let's go. We're going to go glass. And Logan's like, hold on a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Let me me get my coffee real quick. Yeah, so we ground our coffee on the tailgate. And then we head up there to glass. And, you know, in that country, you're glassing for mule deer for, I mean, hours, potentially. And uh, it makes it all better having a cup of coffee. Jet boiling everything up there. Yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. I think oh, yeah. that was we. Uh, what was the what was the the flamingo uh, pink seventy nine? Mm-hmm. Right, that was so good. So my favorite coffee making experience thus far, Black Rifle sent me to Panama. Right, it was a content grab along with some fishing and tuna and everything else. Sounds terrible. It was like camping in the jungle. Yeah. I, I learned the that there's trip. I know, yeah. it was pretty rad. Paul I'm not was telling me about it, and I was just oh, like, it was so oh, cool to have God, him there, dude. So awesome! It was so cool. I learned about the whole like pedal kayak thing. I wasn't super savvy on it, but we were camping in the jungle, cruised down the beach to look for a cool spot to you know do some video or whatever. I'm like, let's make coffee here. Randomly, White Horse 
just in the background, black rifle flag and me like a dumbass making coffee. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. Looks kind of cool. Yeah. Let's fucking capture that thing. Yeah, no shit. That yeah. like such an epic trip. Dude, actually, some of the coolest pictures were balls. I like took a ton of pictures and got some video of him bringing in a pretty big size tuna. The person to travel with than him. I loved, the best. I loved traveling with Yes, yeah, the best. Well, we did Vegas together, yeah. which was fun. And then we did Panama together. We did Bergdorf together. So I got a lot, I got a lot of time with balls. Love him. Good dude. Great dude. Great dude. So I met you yesterday in art. Yep. Was pretty curious after you started talking about long line and being a long lineman and whatnot. Where'd you grow up? Let's start there. Lincoln, Montana, just little tiny logging town in western Montana. Okay. Right on the edge of the Bob Marshall wilderness there, kind of. Okay. So how did you... Home of the Unabomber. Oh, okay. Famous for the claim, Unabomber. Claim, <laughs> famous, famous, famous. Yeah. Claim the fame. Well, I also realized, like, how much synergy is going on between you guys, because I talked to you, mm-hmm. and he, you're like, whoa, I got a story of origin and everything, but I figured I'll start with you. Did you do the long lineman thing, like, right after school, or how did, how did that work? No, I was... You know, honestly, kind of a knife maker until really that 08, 09 time started happening with the market was crashing and had four babies and, you know, four young kids. And if you turn the news on, 20 years later, I realized anytime you turn the news on, the world's ending. Yeah. Um, But you turn the world, the news on at that time. And it was like, we're in a recession. We're heading for a depression. And I was making pretty high end knives at that point in my clientele all of a sudden was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to wait on that order for just a little bit, yep. you know, and um, I started getting nervous just about the longevity of what I was doing and frankly, just paying my bills. Yeah, absolutely. How'd you get into knife making then? Well, I was, I was a little league baseball player. I was 11 and my coach started teaching me. He, he made knives oh, cool. and bring them to practice and just show parents hunting knives. And yeah, of course, being a kid, I was, think thought that was cool. And he invited me out and I started making them in his shop. And then pretty quickly after that, started putting together my own little shop with my lawn mowing money at my dad's shop. Nice. Yeah. 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 That was the origin. Yeah. And you know, I tell people like those people like that. My parents didn't make knives or do that. They had an excavation company, but those coaches who were coaching young kids out there, truly, you don't know what impact you can potentially have. Cause I mean, that was kind of the rest of my life has been just from little league baseball practice, that's kind of where it sparked, you know. I remember a lot of orange slices and cheese strings, so my takeaway was totally different <laughs> than than yeah. a trade that carried you through life, which yeah. is that's super cool. Yeah. So we were so taking. So I got into the lineman stuff kind of after. Uh, I, I was actually teaching a guy to make knives who was working at the power company as a, as a welder. Okay. And I was hearing about paid vacation and four hundred one ks and you know all the stuff that full time knife makers don't have. And yeah. You know, the grass is kind of always greener and, and I'll never regret the move, but I, you know, they had a job opening come up and just kind of for the security of my family, I was like, and I had this excavation background. So they, I actually got hired on to operate equipment and dig for them, dig gas lines up. And I was going to be a welder. Mm-hmm. And soon after I got hired, I started kind of looking around the room in there and realized like all the people with gray hair are linemen and there's going to be a lot more opportunity there to move up. Yeah. And, uh, and I didn't know anything about that job. Like once I got hired there, I was like, wow, that's, we're, we're digging holes and welding pipe, which is cool. But like, 
they're sawing trees down and climbing poles and landing poles with helicopters and pretty rad. Looks a little more rad. <laughs> yeah. Wild, by the way. I just got to go to the lineman competition yeah, yeah. to see Chance, Jamie's yeah. husband. Yep. And man, were my eyes opened after that. That was the most blue collar, hardcore gangster yeah. shit. I've I saw seen. the same shit. It was so cool. I just got sucked in it and just salted the earth people. Yeah, just it was super cool. Americans just. Red-blooded American. I just like, didn't know how physical it was. And even yeah. they had the ones where the guy passes out, he gets electrocuted. Yep. They had the dummy hanging up. They had mm-hmm. to run up, secure him, get him off the pole. Like, Hurt man rescue. Didn't even know that was a thing. It was so cool. It was so wild. And I love Chance. He's fucking rad. Oh, he's like, best. we clicked right away. Actually, his kids were flying in the tunnel. And I was in, that's the first time I met him. And, and I already knew Jamie. And uh, he's like, yeah, I'm a long lineman. Didn't say anything about it. I just went, okay. Oh, and he's legit. Like but he's legit, legit. To actually understand what that yeah. trade and that skill, like that job is, I was like, holy fucking shit, that is awesome. And he's a, such a cut up all the time. Yeah, and yeah. then when I got there, it wasn't like goofy chance. It was, Busy. he was in it. Yeah. It was business. Yeah. I mean, and then I didn't know they got belt buckles and everything. Yeah. Like it's a full thing. It's, it's a cool. family. And, and it honestly, a lot of people kind of compare it somewhat to the military because you're, you're in a crew. It's like your team. You kind of know what the other guy's doing without speaking. You're trusting that guy with you with your life mm-hmm. because if he screws up, I mean, he might kill both of you, you know, or he can hand you a wire, tell you it's dead, or do do something that costs you your life. And, yep. and it's a brotherhood. And but also, um, God, you're just savage to each other too. I mean, you just pound on each other all day long. Yeah, but that's um, the best part about those environments is the banter. You know what I mean? As soon as I saw the video, I was like, yeah. that kind of feels like military fire. Like there's like a camaraderie. You know that whole t- and a little bit of rodeo. Like and, if those the yeah. three things. And you're trusting the guy to watch your back. You know, you're, you're in the bucket or you're on the pole and the guy's like, hey, watch your back. Why are we right behind you? You know, you're just always watching out for your partner and you're trusting they're doing that for you. So it's. But I believe you have to have that cut up and goofing off like the military because it's so serious life mm-hmm. and death. And then when it's not, you have to combat that with extreme cutting up, messing with each other. Absolutely. Goofing. And it's like. You know, EMS, firefighters, military, police, linemen, like every job that's super, even welding. Yep. Like when I was going through welding school, I was like, these are my people. Like, yeah. This yeah. is really rad because it's a shitty, miserable job that you can get jacked up if you're not doing a good job. Absolutely. And then when it's all said and done, you get to cut up and have fun. Yeah. And remind them of what they screwed up that day. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk shit. <laughs> you just got to yeah. talk shit. I think it's part of the, yeah. the, quo, the quota. Which makes you better too because you don't want to be the guy to... To be getting the shit that night. So you're trying to do a good job at your job to to not be the brunt of the joke at the end of the day. Like, yep. Yeah, right? Remember when you did that, stupid? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's certain mistakes you got to make because you only make them once. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Minus life limber eyes, yeah, of course. Yeah. Burning your house down, stuff like that. Oh, have you done that? Yeah. What are you talking uh, I mean, about? Uh, we'll get to it. <laughs> Actually, I, I got I to I cut in with this. So my, my son is hanging out with his cousin, right, this week. And uh, he's he's super straightforward with me. I was like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, ah, we got to get a new, like, some little pipe on the quads because they were riding quads around. Uh-huh. And I go, cool, what what happened? He goes, well, I was trying to hotwire, and there's a little bit of fuel dripping, and we caught the uh, quad on fire. Oh. And I go, is there a parent around? He goes, no, nah, but we put it out. I go, I appreciate your honesty. For sure don't do that when there's nobody around. <laughs> he's like, then we tried to make a baking soda bomb. Like, that's my son. Yeah. That's, that's how that goes. You got to figure yeah. it out. Less, he won't forget. No, Don't forget it. No, absolutely not. All right. So long linemen, what brought yep. you back into making knives? I mean, kids got older. Um, I, the, the making knives part of me never left. I mean, I'd been doing course, it since yeah. I was 11. Um, things kind of stabilized, you know, I'd gone through a divorce and just things were crazy. Single dad, four kids, just kind of 
going through life. And then frankly, meeting my new wife, um, when I got married, like it provided me kind of the time to get back to the shop in the evenings instead of washing clothes and cooking dinner. I was like, she's like, I got this, go do your thing. And I'd been telling her about this idea of this company I wanted to start. And I, you know, I registered the name Montana knife company with the state of Montana when I was 19. Oh shit. But I launched it when I was 39, Yeah, you know? So, and I was telling her about this and she was like, well, you do it. Let's do it. And, uh, and of course, right then she's like, you should just quit your job and do it. I'm like, well, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> Slow down. Slow down. Yeah, we got to pay some bills. Yeah. Here, bills and shit. <laughs> um, so no, I started, uh, kind of working towards that goal in the evenings and getting back in the shop. And I went and did that show kind of forged in fire. And I, I say that not because, um, I think it's, some accomplishment. I mean, you, it's not that hard to get on that show, but it was more of a like challenge to myself kind of in front of people. Like there's a lot of knife makers that are like, well, I'd smoke those guys or whatever. And it's like, we well, can talk all you want till you're on national TV and yeah. they're handing you a task that you don't know what's coming. Like, and there's the pressure and it was a good, it was a good experience and it kind of got my juices flowing again. And nice. I came home from that and was like, re- really like, I want to push to launch this company. And, um, well, and you went on when it was the legends competing. So like the first probably five to six seasons of Forge and Fire were all the guys who had been master blacksmiths for a long, long time. So it was like he got to go against some of the best knife makers out there. Now it's guys like me who have started in the Forge and Fire era. Mm-hmm. So it's like the guys that are on the show now got into blacksmithing because of the show. Right. So when he competed, he was going against like Mareko and like dudes who had been unbelievable blacksmiths for a very long time. And there was never a platform for them to show off what they were doing. Right. So he went on when I think like the best, like season one through six, when yeah. like the big boys coming out. I love this. There, I love this whole culture. I love this whole story. And there were definitely like, you know, I'd seen the show. They asked me the first season and I was like, well, I, I'm pretty proud of being a knife maker. And I, I think it's a, it's a profession. Mm-hmm. It's not just a hobby. And it's, and I, I take it serious and it's, it's Lucas's living. It's, it was my living like at that point. And, and so, um, I didn't want to be a part of some like reality show that was just yeah. a joke, but after I saw it, I thought they did, you know, they did a pretty good job. It's TV. They, they, sure. you know, you got to take it for a grain of salt, but there were guys on there for sure. That I was like, I could beat that guy in my sleep. And then I get there and <laughs> I'm competing against, you know, went Liam, Liam Hoffman the first time. And mm-hmm. then Mareko Malmasi, Mareko phenomenal chef's knife maker, um, and we became close friends. I mean, really close friends. And in fact, he's doing stuff for our company now. Um, but it's a, it's a brotherhood, but it yeah. was definitely, um, like it was a hard competition, you know, but it was, it was a great experience for sure. Um, well, and there's something that he's not adding. Josh is the youngest master blacksmith in history. So there's a lot riding on that as well. Of yeah. like, oh, you're the youngest master blacksmith ever. And what's that age? Just a uh, I was 19 when I did that. Fuck. Yeah. You mentioned that yesterday. I was I was keeping it. It was like a little golden ticket. I was going to yeah. fuck with you. Yeah. yeah that's but it's, I mean, that when you go on, there's a lot of people that have never seen blacksmithing, don't understand the community, don't understand. Like he got to train under some of the living legends, like the guys who created processes we use today. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot riding on that. You know, a normal person could see it, say, oh, that guy doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. He's an idiot because he had to make a knife out of the front of a Volkswagen bumper that they right. slammed into an ice block. Right. And it's like, I don't do this at home. And especially in three hours. <laughs> yeah. So there's that too, where it's, you know, he 
is literally one of the best and a legend in our community. And if you don't win, then everyone's like, ha you don't know what you're doing. And yeah, a lot of scrutiny. For me, that would be a mental thing. I can't speak for you, but for me, that would be something else too, is like, what if I get on there and they do something I've never done before? And well, I have a lot right well, there. That's definitely a fear. I mean, oh, yeah, sure. and I, I definitely had to do some stuff on there. I mean, I'm not a sword maker and all of a sudden they're making you make a sword in five days and it's, you know, your shop's net's not set up for it. I mean, you know, if, if you just told Lucas tomorrow, go build a, a sword, like you're, you're, you're not, that's not what you do every day. Right. And so no, you're quench tanks for it. You have no way to heat treat it. Yeah. You don't have like, you just, or just the skill to do it. I mean, I made the machete when Evan and all them went with Cole to do the bear hunt. Yep. You know, Cole wanted me to make something to clear. He had this little machete he had been using, wanted to tweak it in a few ways. So I made them some, and I mean, it was only, I think it was close to two feet handle mm -hmm. to tip. And I mean, God, that whooped my butt. Just, yeah. I'd never made something that big. Yeah. And I mean, that's half of a sword. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't even imagine. Yeah. Lucas is, <laughs> is super kind, obviously bringing all that up as far as the Mastersmith stuff. But I mean, he, he, he kind of alluded to it with the Masters. I mean, I, I, I was really fortunate. One, I got involved with what just happened to be knife makers that were about to become great themselves. Mm -hmm. um, they were newer makers when I was a kid. And I just happened to be in with a group, you know, of Montana makers that were about to like blow on the national scene like crazy. And they were learning from some of the legends. And, you know, the only way you get that good at 15 or 19 years old is by, by being around some really great people that share information. And, yeah. you know, our community, um, you know, back then there was no internet, there was no YouTube, there was no Instagram. You had to, you had to, find out information to one of two ways. Someone had to show you or you had to just experiment and figure it out. And I had a lot of people at that age, like telling me tips and tricks and showing me how to do things. And so I give a ton of credit to my success back then and kind of how fast I moved up the, the ladder of, I don't know, rating of knife maker based off just who I happened to be around, you know, it was, it was a lot of good fortune there. Well, don't discount it too much. I mean, there's, there's also a lot of talent and reps, you know, you got to love it, get the reps and it's no different than shooting. The difference between yeah. a beginning shooter and a guy that's, you know, slinging it like Kirk Homer or whoever else reps and yeah, having the discipline. I was definitely that kid, like before school, after school, I, you know, I, I, I didn't do much with friends or go out much. I mean, I played sports and stuff, but I, I was, pretty driven kid. So that, that part of it, I'll give myself credit, but I, again, you got to have the right, the right instruction and, and, and mentors to, frankly, they, they were hard on me. Like, you know, uh, they didn't pass out compliments and I feel like I was constantly chasing the compliment that sure. I think I finally got when I was 30. <laughs> a little edification every once in a while is not yeah, a bad thing. They're you know? rough. Yeah. Yeah. I um, bet. But it's tough love, you know, and, 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 it's like, yeah, if you're going to be a puss, you're probably not going to hang around very long. You got to be able to take a beating. And and I was the kid. I mean, they called me Psycho Knife Boy. And I had to go get like, here's $10 and quarters. Go buy as many pops in the pop machine kit as it gets yeah. back to the hotel room. The psycho Knife Kid. <laughs> yeah. Psycho Knife Boy. Yeah. So uh, it was a long time of like trying to earn their respect, which why would they respect me? I'm a kid. You right. Know? But uh, yeah, it was, it was awesome. It was a cool time. Did your kiddo show ambition for that? Um, a little bit, but yeah. I mean, he's so big into his sports and doing his thing. And, yep. um, you know, I, I don't, I don't push him on that. I want him to yeah. figure out their own way, but, mm. um, yeah, no. And then it's cool to see the world, just the knife world from where it was back then when I started to now and seeing guys like Lucas and these guys just explode and take the knife world in so many different directions. 
that's what's so cool. And guys are like, you know, post a picture of, you know, or a share a story of Lucas's or he will of mine. And people ask us like, he's your competition. Why would you, why would you post your competition? And it's like, well, it's respect. Well, and it, it's, it's more of a brotherhood and yeah. he does his thing and I do mine. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and that's the cool thing about knives. Like I guarantee you a lot of Lucas's collectors have probably 10 other knife makers knives. hundred percent. Um, and frankly, they're buying into the person. Like the guys who are buying Lucas's knives are buying Lucas yeah, because he's a cool dude and he's a badass and they, and they really like what he does. And same thing with my stuff. They're, they're buying what I'm about. And, um, that, that was really kind of one of the things that coolest things about coming up where all the, the knife shows you, you had to go and meet people and they get to know you. And the next thing you know, they're buying a knife. Yeah. And there's 600 knife makers at that show. They could buy a knife from, but they bought one from you. Probably not because your knife was the best one in the room. They they thought you were cool, you yeah. know. And so it's it's a neat it's a neat world that we're in for That's sure. Super cool. It's unique compared to a lot of other crafts Very. where everybody hides every secret. Yeah. Well, and I feel like it was till recently though. I feel like a lot of guys were kind of secretive, and I think there's been a huge shift. I'm obviously new in the community, but I feel like there was a huge shift the last five years of like people starting to help out, and especially I'd say in the last three of just like what we're doing, like supporting each other, you know, hanging out with each other, hanging each other's banners in each other's shops. Like just, I learned that through Black Rifle of watching the community. And I knew when I got into this, for me, it's a lot of guys see these master blacksmiths and stuff and all they want is for them to look at their knife and tell them they did good. Right. The way I approached it was they're not buying my knife, you know, respectfully, it's not, I don't need their praise. I want to build that friendship personally, support them. How can I help? Can I give you any tips? Because a lot of knife makers are very introverted. Um, they're it's a big, awesome group of goofball weirdos. And this whole social media stuff that's changed over the last few years, none of them understood it. Right. And I would go to Blade Show. Guy would run up to me and be like, Lucas, and give me a huge hug. And I'd kind of stand back and stare at him. And he's like, you know, let's NKC knives. And I'm like, Holy shit, dude. So good to see you. I've never yeah. seen his face before. He right. only posts photos of his knives. And now I'm seeing a huge shift in guys selling themselves, telling their stories, you know, putting their faces on camera and doing collaborations. Mm-hmm. And that's what really, I believe, blew me up in this is reaching out to other makers saying, you want to do a collaboration? I'm yeah. very blessed with, you know, some cool people that follow me in a cute, cool community let me, you have 10 times more skill in your pinky than I have my whole body, but you're selling your knives for one third of what I am just because no one knows who you are. Right. Let yeah. me help you do this. Let's do this together. I guarantee one day we'll get to forge and I can learn from you, but I think you're an amazing person. So let me try to get your name and your story out there. And for me in this, that's like the number one important thing is building the friendships in the community. And I'm not looking to get anything out of it, just make us all help each other and do it together because that works so much better than trying to do it on your own. It's just that an awesome thing. Yeah, for sure. And it's just such an awesome approach. Now, granted, you are one of the nicest humans on the planet mm-hmm. and one of my favorite people at Black Rifle. Let's unpack Lucas just a little bit because I know you've been on before, but yeah. kind of where'd you come from, veteran, yeah. you know, stuff like that. Tell me a little bit. Yeah, uh, raised in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, hardcore, sheltered, raised, super religious. Yeah. Uh, homeschooled, one of six kids. Um, religion was forced down my throat to an extent of everything's right, wrong. You're going to burn hell. Like there was a lot of fear growing up of like, I'm going to do something wrong, all that guilt. Exactly. Um, Lost my dad at 13 to a drunk driver, which kind of sped up my life very quickly. Mm -hmm. 
Um, stopped essentially learning school at about seventh grade because um, I was homeschooled. My mom essentially tapped out of teaching us. And luckily, my younger sisters were really smart and they the education never got hurt because mm -hmm. they were smart enough to just do it. I needed guidance. I needed someone to be over my shoulder, say, this is what I expect out of you. Do it. Yep. Show me you did it. My answer books was right next to my school books. So I started cheating in about seventh grade. That's where my education stops. Yep. Then joined the military um, as soon as I could. And then the rest was history. You had a huge wake-up call uh, when I got to my units. Military is pretty rough for me in the beginning. I just wanted to fit in. Yeah. Um, I didn't know how to socialize. I was saying anything I could to try to match everyone. And, oh, yeah, yeah, I get fucked up too. I drink. Yeah. And it's just like I did never done anything. Um, so that was pretty tough getting that and just didn't know who I was. And it was, shoot, I don't even think I figured that out till say Yesterday. I kind of got settled <laughs> about three years ago when I yeah. broke my back. Yeah. That was the big life-changing moment for me. But that's really when you and I actually started like talking. I'll get to that. that yeah, is, that's we're holding that's that one. One. I love that's one of my favorite <laughs> stories. Story. Um but anyway, yeah. So military eight years, uh got out, contracted for another two and a half, three-ish after mm -hmm. that. Um Realized I was going to lose my wife. Uh, it wasn't working with me being overseas. And I was like, she wasn't, we weren't married yet. We were, I went through a marriage, failed miserably. That's a whole nother long story. Um, but failed miserably and then was pretty hurt. So mm -hmm. took me eight years to propose to my wife now after two kids. But anyway, knew I was going to lose that and I didn't want to. So quit everything, came home and we got pregnant like a month later. Uh, knew I wanted to shift life. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was bodyguarding, contracting, doing all that really heavy in the nightclub scene in Atlanta, mm -hmm. along with a lot of other stuff. And uh, yeah, I just decided to hang it all up and use my GI Bill to go to welding school. While I was in welding school, saw a little article for a blacksmith shop in Atlanta called Goat and Hammer. It's $120 to make a knife out of a railroad spike. Cool. So I went, I like trying new things. Uh, I always just like, oh yeah, I'll do it. Um, so went and did that. And I mean, <clears throat> the fair, and I hate saying it, it sounds so cheesy, but the therapeutic benefit I got in that three hour class, I came home like on the verge of tears. I just felt so good. Yeah. And I just would not shut up. And my wife was like, you need to do that again. And I was like, okay. So classes were kind of expensive, like especially for me at that time. Like mm -hmm. we're talking like emptying pockets on the weekends so we can buy a 40 kind of stuff. Yep. Um, but Sydney knew how important it was and how happy I had been. And I'm doing night school. So I kind of have the day. So I would go take a welding class, show up to the nightclub, work nightclub, then do school. And it was just so many things going yeah, on. All over. And uh, Mark and Jess, so Mark Hopper and Jessica Collins, they run Goat and Hammer. And uh, I just kept buying classes and I kept showing up and I got along with Mark really well. And he was like, I was like, please, I'll sweep. I'll help move equipment. I'll do whatever you need. Just teach me yeah. because I can't afford this. And he was like, cool, start coming to class. So for a year, he put me through the ringer, traditional blacksmithing. So I didn't barely even made knives that first year. Mm -hmm. It was just working on drifts, hammers, tongs, like just how to blacksmith and then started teaching knives. So I had that whole year and a half of welding school because I was in night school during the day. My wife worked or night school at night, watching the little ones during the day. And we only had Reagan at the time, my mm -hmm. oldest. So when she was sleeping, I was down playing in the shop and just started making knives. And it was just for me. I never in a million years, like I was, I was killing myself in school. I graduated with uh, my 6G and TIG 
And just, I busted my ass because I wanted to get the highest paid welding job I could so that I could. And I loved it. I love working with my hands. But family started buying them. Friends started buying them. And the day I graduated, Sydney was like, you, you want to try to do this? And not joking, I think it was like a month or so after that, I was looking at Josh's Instagram and I went to, I was trying to write a message or something. And I wrote a message out like three or four times just to like introduce myself. And there was something specific you had done that I wanted to comment on. And I was trying to figure out the best way to do it. And I was like, ah, oh, this is stupid. And I went to X out of it. And it was right the week Instagram had started doing the video chat. Yeah. And I hit the button and it called. And I was like, oh, shit. And I'm trying to figure out how to turn it off. And I'm having a full and My wife's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, it's calling Josh. I don't know how. And, it, and you just answered. And you were sitting in your big dad chair, like in the living room. I think you had a beer or something. You're like. Hello? <laughs> uh, hey, sir. Um, That's because I didn't know how to run Instagram either. Like, my Instagram's ringing. I didn't know how to do that. And, and I was like, uh, hey, sir, uh, my name's Lucas. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan and everything. And he was like, oh, how you doing, man? And just started talking. I think we talked for like 30 or 40 minutes. And you, I think it was right before the time MKC was about to start. Mm. This was... Maybe three and a half, four years ago. Yeah, it was roughly. before. It was actually probably a good year before I, because I didn't do MKC till 2020. So, and then probably, so yeah. we talked, kind of got friendly where I felt like I could, you know, message him and all that. Sure. And then started Grizzly Forge and nice. went all in on that. And then about a few months later, we talked again. And I don't remember how the conversation happened, but you were asking me, you were like, the social media, because my social media, I knew. The face thing, like I was talking about. I'd already been to Blade Show a few times. And besides like Alec and Will Stelter and a few guys on YouTube, nobody was using social media for their knives. Mm -hmm. Like nobody was doing it. And I saw a huge hole in that. And watching Black Rifle, I knew how important marketing, social media, promoting, all of that was. So I'd already gotten pretty heavy on my social media, the way I was talking to the camera and introducing myself. Because at that point, and especially bodyguarding, I had been blessed to meet so many of my idols that I looked up to. And when I met them in real life, I realized they sucked. Uh -huh. And it, one of them in particular really affected me. Like it really upset me how shitty that person was. Can you say who? No. It really upset me how that conversation went. And I was like, I'm going to be me. As hard or raw as it is, I'm going to be me. So I was talking to the camera like I had a billion followers when I had 120. Yeah. But that slowly started going and taking off and my followers started building and I started selling my knives very well. And then Josh and I talked and he was like, I'm thinking about NKC, we're doing this. Like, what do you think? And I was like, dude, you're the best. Like, whatever you do is going to be awesome. And then we talked about social media. And he was yeah. like, how are you doing your social media? Like how, I don't know anything about mm -hmm. this. Yeah. And I told him, I was like, the number one thing you need to do is hire a social media guy with a good camera and a video. You'll crush it. I was like, with all your knowledge and everything, it's going to be amazing. And I'm not, it's not my credit, but he then hired Brandon, which worked for full story. Like he worked for a company that I'd obsessed about the seven years prior to that. Like Rob Bailey, I literally, he drew the tattoo on my leg. Yeah. So he worked for Flag Nor Fail, which at the time, in my opinion, was probably one of the best marketed company clothing or marketed clothing companies on earth. What Rob and Daniel and Bailey had been able to create in that time was unreal. And that, I bled that company until Black Rifle started and then kind of shift. 
not that anything happened. I just shifted more towards the black rifle crowd, mm-hmm. but it was something I looked up to and Rob, I'd gone to all their camps. I had driven up to PA to go to the gym. Cause I was really heavy into working out at the time because of bodyguarding. Mm-hmm. It's about three twenty five at that time. On <sighs> a lot of steroids. Damn. A lot of steroids. Oh, yeah. I was, you were three twenty five. Now what do you, what are you six, four, six, five, six, seven. Jesus. Yeah, my biggest was 325 at 67 and I was running like 250 cc's of Tess and Tran every 3 days. Damn. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Probably that's good. I you could probably hit like, some steel. How's really how's the ticker? You good? Yeah, you know, that's why I stopped. <laughs> I made it all the way through like my biggest happy days and no injuries, no nothing and then that was when I broke my back. I had just shifted back to like going more cardio in that kind of world mm-hmm. and then broke my back and I've not How'd you break your back? Oh man, we're skipping all over. Uh, <laughs> sorry, dropped sorry. a thousand pound gun safe on top of me. Okay, I've heard that story. Yep. Would you like to share? I think we did on the last one actually. Okay, fair yeah. enough. So yeah. loading up, crushed you. Yeah, and that well that ties in. So telling Josh about all of this, and then Brandon is who MKC and Josh they hired, mm-hmm. and to this day I think he's one of the best marketers I've ever seen in my life. And it shows like it, what they've been able to accomplish, just hitting that social media was huge. So yeah, built that friendship and then everything failed. Um, My wife, I was a piece of shit. I was coming out of the club scene. I was struggling with a lot of things emotionally, been a womanizer my entire life. I had failed in a lot of aspects of that. Um, And we were two months behind on the mortgage. Power got shut off. Water got shut off. And I had photographed my entire shop to sell. And Sydney, even though we were going through a really rough time, was like, we're so far behind. Wait two more weeks. Like, yeah. just wait two more weeks. And then that's when I uh, photoed the shop. And then that next day, I got a phone call from Evan. And he was like, you want to do like a bag opener or something? And then, yeah, the rest is history of Black Rifle. Did that bag opener. Turned the lights back on. Um, crushed myself for those five months getting all those done. And then the day I dropped them off, the gun safe fell on me. Fuck. Um, fractured my spine. Wife had left me. Uh, I had just moved in. It was week two of COVID. Had just moved into the house, my new house that I was living in. Had nothing furnished. Nothing, I mean, it was empty. Yeah. And uh, yeah, week two of COVID with a fractured spine. Fractured it in five places. And I uh, was just stuck on the couch and in my own head for three months. And Fucking awful. Yeah. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. Um, I was Because of you. In, yeah. Yeah. Well, it just... I'm not good at sitting still and I'm not good at being in my own head. Mm-hmm. Um, and it forced me to be in my own head. Like no one was coming over. No one was hanging out. No one could help me. My neighbor came over to take me to take a shit twice a day. Mm-hmm. And then I had a little card table that said, had a sign on my door that said, uh, I don't have COVID. I have a fractured spine. No one's here to feed me. Can you please bring the food in and put it on the table? I remember all that. I remember Fuck. you telling me all that on the phone. I couldn't even, I couldn't even get up to get my food. Mm-hmm. So they would have to come in. We had a tri-level house or I had a tri-level house. It was like three steps up. So they'd open the door, go three steps, put it on the car table, and then I could eat. Um, so yeah, I uh, didn't take the VA um, the wonderful VA yep. gave me over 60 Percocet, over 50 Oxycontins, and over 50 Muscle Roxers. Fucking one VA. Day because it was COVID. And yep. they knew I wouldn't be able to get back there. And first thing I did is I got home. I walked in. I poured them all down my toilet. I mean, it's just such a game. I should have sold them. <laughs> huge mistake. Yeah. <laughs> that was a huge mistake on my part. But... You know, I dumped them all down the toilet and was like, I can't do this. And I self-prescribed. I was doing 
close to 800 to 1,000 milligrams of edibles a day yep. um, and close to 1,000 milligrams of CBD and just left in my own head. And that was the biggest moment of soul searching I ever had. And that's what changed everything about me. Got my wife back, got my family back, um, figured out what I was really messing up on yep. and all of that. And then I, I got rid of a lot of people in my life that didn't need to be in it and decided to start surrounding myself with the people that were way ahead of me in life, mentally, physically, emotionally, everything. And just knew I didn't ever want to be the biggest man in the room. Mm -hmm. I wanted to learn, open up, be a lot more humble. And honestly, like kind of tap into my emotions a little bit more. I was a pretty dark human. I've been burned a lot in my life. And I'm on this pretty rough stuff. And, uh, I just decided it was time for a fresh start. And um, when I came back from that injury is when it all just took off. Made the move out here, obviously. The business started thriving. My family started thriving. My wife left Atlanta, which I never thought she would do because she's so plugged in with her friends and family. But she knew what this opportunity gave us. She knew how happy the girls were. She knew how happy and how good it was for me to be around guys like you and Josh and everyone in the community out here. Uh, I mean, it essentially saved me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. It's just been trying to hold on to that roller coaster ride. It's just fucking just rad. It goes. It's like one of my favorite part, like parts of the day when I come to Black Rifle. And I don't live here, obviously. You know, I travel in fairly, fairly regularly. But just to see you out there fucking smashing it in the forge or grabbing a cup of coffee. And then your girls and your wife were running around yesterday. It's just awesome to see, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's cool for me to see because so right when he was sitting with his broken back was that was right when I had made my prototypes and was just like starting to launch MKC Yeah, and talked to him. And I knew kind of where he was in his spot. And of course I was, I wasn't in a rough spot. I was just like starting something new with completely unknown and no clue really how to, I could make custom knives, but how do you build a a big company and a brand? Mm -hmm. And both of us really at that moment started like working on the next phase of our life, which was, is pretty wild. Like when you look back at it and it's also just a, like a blink of an eye. It was like yesterday, but it was literally two years ago, you know? Um, so it's cool to see and for him to make that, that move out here and start over. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's pretty wild. And now you look around and you see Grizzly Forge all over the place. And, um, it's, I don't know, it's pretty cool. Even my son, I was like, Hey, check this out. And I showed him a picture. He's like, I know that guy. He, he recognized your Instagram. But it it's pretty not, awesome. It's not for any other reason than I think the community. Like, mm-hmm. and I really mean that. Like, and it's not shitting on myself. I'm a decent knife maker. I've only been doing this three years. Mm-hmm. And what happened with me is selling myself worked. So the knife started selling. So I was trying to keep up with the demand of the knife without, or the demand of the knives without continuing to grow as a knife maker. So for a minute there, I was like pigeonholed into making only what I was making. And then finally, I just started trying new things and the people still bought it. Even if That's it was always a, a challenge. I, yeah, like when I was in high school, frankly, I got a lot of advice from older guys because I got stuck. You know, I'm junior high. I'm making knives and I'm getting a bunch of orders. I started having some magazine articles about me. And all of a sudden, I've got two years worth of orders for like the same five knives. Mm. and I did that for a year or two and I kind of was stagnating a little bit. And I had some advice from some old guys that were like, did you live at home with your parents? You're, you're 16. Mm -hmm. Why are you, why are you feeling obligated to any of this stuff? You should just be 
trying to just take this time to learn and get better. Mm. And I did, I canceled a lot of my orders and, you know, probably upset some people or whatever, but I started more pushing, like trying to do things that I hadn't done before. And, and also that makes it more fun too, because it absolutely, it just turns into a, no, pardon the pun, but a grind. Yeah. Um, and there's a balance, right? Cause as a full-time maker, if you're Lucas, like you also can't just not take any orders at all or pay attention to any of that. Um, especially in the beginning when you're learning, it's a little easier when you've gotten, you know, I got to a spot in the custom knife making where I took a few orders when I wanted to, but I was better off just making what I wanted to make and then put it up for sale. Yeah. Um, I mentioned, I mean, the creativity, right? So if you're only making the same five blades for a certain amount of time, especially while you're learning, you're not stepping outside of the box that make, that yeah. forces you, I guess, to well, learn more. Um, to me, when I broke my back, I was booked out over a year when that happened yeah. and breaking my back gave me that opportunity to say, Hey, all your orders are canceled. I'm sorry. And I refuse to take money before the knife is done. Right. Cause yeah. there's this weird mental thing that makes you feel like you're working for free mm. when you're really not, but it's, it's hard to explain, but it's a weird thing. I get it. Well, and then they kind of own you that, you know, I, I've seen it a hundred times where you're with, stuck to a price mm. or they're calling you asking you like, Hey, when are you going to get that done? And, and if you're not really, disciplined with those, that deposit money, like anybody that's in that situation, any kind of art form, like open a separate account, you put it in that and you don't touch it until the, that piece of artwork's done. And, and you, I'm not disciplined. And like you take that, that out. <laughs> and there's a lot of knife makers have gotten a real bind with a deposit game. Um, I got in a bind one time with a, with a knife. I took a deposit as I was starting it, which that's pretty normal. Cause I was, I probably had six or $7,000 worth of gold that I had to buy just for that one knife. And so I didn't frankly have the money to buy it. So I took the deposit, but I hadn't done a lot of gold work. I'd been trying to learn and push myself. Well, I pushed myself a little too far on that one. (laughs) And I did a bunch of gold soldering one evening. It went great. It was like, wow, I'm turning into a damn jeweler. This is awesome. I'm, I'm so good. And then the next day, you know, Lucas knows with heat treating, you heat treat a blade or you heat something at night when it's dark, you can see all the color and that color comes quickly and it's easy to see. Well, the next day I'm back out there. Um, think I'm, you know, Mr. Shake, whatever gold guy himself. And, uh, I'm heating that gold up and I'm waiting for it to get like nice and cherry red, but it's a bright sunny day and the lights pouring through my windows. And all of a sudden the gold just goes blah, and just melts like just into a puddle. Shit. And it was about $3,000 worth of gold, like under my torch, just a mud puddle of gold. And, you know, I got in kind of a bind, like I had to go a while, like make another knife and save some money. And, you know, I was pretty paycheck to paycheck at that point. And, um, yeah, so you can get in a bind. People don't understand like the full-time, like custom knife making thing. There's no paid vacation, no insurance. Um, if you screw something up, I mean, I built the sword one time I spent over a month on and had to start over. That's a month that's gone. Yeah. When I was a lineman, if I screwed something up at four o'clock, they paid me double time to fix it. <laughs> like it's a totally different perspective. And if you take a week off in September and go hunting, they pay you to go. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, even contracting, like you know, you're yep. worth X amount while you're gone, but when you're home, you're paying your own tax, yeah. and you're yeah, it's so it's if Lucas takes off and goes and screws around for a week, like the whole time, it's in your mind, like man, I got to get to my shop and work. Like I mean, it's a two thousand dollar trip. And mentally turns into a $7,000 trip yeah. Yeah. because then you're adding up everything you're not making. Exactly. You have an employee that you pay regardless of whether you work or not. And yep. it gets stressful. But yeah, breaking the back like that helped not having to 
do the drop or not having to do the custom orders anymore. And then I switched to drops. And when I got passionate about it again and started only making what I wanted to make, it worked. And then being in the security industry, I've always been around like hype beasts and like all hype pieces and stuff like that. Yep. And I saw same thing Flag Nor Fail did going full circle back to that is they would do this thing called under 100. So they would drop a clothing line or they'd do something and it was one through 100, that's it. When it drops, they never do it again. Mm -hmm. And for me, when you see a knife, unless it's like my revenant or a piece that'll be there forever, I may never make it again. Because when I get bored, I don't do it. And then I just keep, and as long as the drops keep selling the way they are, I just keep doing that way. And it's, the people literally gave me an opportunity to have fun. Like to this morning, I just Cerakoted three blades with this crazy pink. I've never Cerakoted before. Yeah. But it was one of those, like, I want to try it. And those three blades will sell out on Sunday. And the people supporting me now, they have a piece that may never come back again. That if I do this right over the next 15, 20, 30 years, all of these pieces will gain value as they go. Yeah, it's a piece so of history. Down, yeah. well, 100%. And I yeah. learned that with Maker's Marks. Like if you find a William Skagel, if you find a Skagel with his original Maker's Mark on it, that could be, let's just say, 10,000 more than a Skagel with version two Maker's Mark. Mm -hmm. Because then you can start dating them. And that's something I take, I, I notice and I take very seriously is trying to build, trying to build that hype behind it. So that, yeah, it may be the only one ever. And then now you're adding value to it. And as long as I'm having fun and always changing and learning and trying to get better, then you're just continuing to create awesome things that may never come back. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell about your, your first, your first knife, right? So you kept your first Yep. and it's got your mark on it. Yep. And then. Well, no, no mark. So I oh, don't no have mark. a maker's mark. I probably have, I probably have. 30 to 40 knives out there that never even had a maker's mark yeah. because it took me a while before I even learned like, whoa, should I get a maker's mark? Like, yeah. am I cool enough to get one now? <laughs> yeah. Like, it was something I asked my mentor. I was like, can I get a maker's mark? And he was like, yeah, you can get a maker's mark. <laughs> and then that's when I was like, oh shoot, I got to come up with, I need to figure this out. And it took a long time to figure out what I was going to create as a knife business. And that's where Grizzly Forge came in. How'd you land on that? Um, obsession with bears since I was a child. Okay. Um, first animal. I he's as big as a bear. He's a, he's a bear man. He's a bear man. No, I asked him to slouch just so I didn't look. So I small. told him he really, if he, he should step his marketing game up. Cause if he, <laughs> if he just bought a bear yeah. and had it like wandering around back here in black rifle, you'd have to close the gates clearly. For sure. Um, I mean, it depends on the bear. Yeah. yeah. Um, like yeah. maybe a retired, like Hollywood bear, like Bart. Yeah. And yeah. just, yeah, Bart was cool there. It'd make really good content stuff. I'm pretty sure Evan 100%. would figure out how to work it into the I feel like if there was anywhere I could do it, it could potentially be here. I mean, we, we got to keep the gate closed now anyway. So we're like 50% of the way. I mean, what keeps It's kind of security. Yeah. You could probably like also write it off on security. Security Absolutely. and marketing. It's really a win-win. Yeah. Yeah, for everything. And and it could, Apple can use it. I can use it. Like, yeah, we could we could do like the the mule train thing too. Like could carry stuff around if we needed to. Coffee bags. Spare. So, so, I mean, yeah, it all so ties in. Kodiak I don't know. I'm really actually kind of disappointed Evan hasn't already gotten a bear, but... No. Let's propose it. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be, it'd be natural. Yeah. We can hang out in the forge, have like a little bear kitty litter kind of set up, and I mean, it'll be low-key. There's enough dog shit around here. God knows. <laughs> oh, don't get me started. Uh, but no, so grew up black bear hunting with my grandfather up in Waynesville, North Carolina, and uh, just I've always loved bears. And then my heart has been out west since the day I was born. Yeah. And I don't joke like... 
even though I grew up in Atlanta and all that, like I just have always wanted to live out West. And when I Same. named it Grizzly Forge, everyone assumed that I already lived out here because of the way I dressed, the way, which is where my heart was. Like I've always wanted to be a mountain man. Mm -hmm. Davey, Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett. Like if I could go back in any, any time, it would be the Indian French Revolution. Like, yeah. That's where I would go. So it was just grizzlies were out here. It was the one thing I'd never got to hunt. Uh, my whole bedroom was bears and it was like that rustic, like that old, like mountain rustic decor. Yeah. yeah. That's like what my mom was into. So mm -hmm. it was like all these little black bears everywhere and all that. And then I guess it was just one of those things. Like I thought about it and I was like, Grizzly Forge, like I have to live out West one day. If I name my company this, like it just, it, I have to be out there. And I always joked with my wife. I was like, I have to, like one day we are going to live out West. I told her the day I know I made it was when I'm wearing a Buffalo hide robe. <laughs> butt naked, standing on my log cabin on my hundred acres, drinking my cup of coffee, just looking out at nothing. Hell yeah. Like, day I have that and mark my words, I will have that. Is that why you hang out at the front of the shop naked with that thing on? See? Are you just manifesting? Is that I'm what's going on here? I don't even have the buffalo robe yet. I'm just using like a jacket. It just doesn't feel right. Well, the, the well, we bear is missing. Yeah. <laughs> we get that right now. Yeah. The bear pelt is missing off the couch constantly. So and you're just naked all the time when it's early. I came in that early. I was yeah. in the gym. That's not yeah. So, no, but yeah, that's where it came from. Nothing too crazy. It's just, I've always loved bears. I grew up hunting them and it was just test tied in. Plus, it's super rad. It is pretty cool. First knife. Do you still have it? I do. Yeah. I have my first one. Uh, actually has my, it's weird because I had some that I didn't stamp because like my stamp got messed up and I was a kid and like went months or a year without any stamp and stuff. But that's one thing I would say, if you're a maker of any kind, you make anything like always mark your work. Cause like, I regret that, like not having that mark, you know, and I should have had some better record keeping, but also as a kid, I wasn't concerned about longevity or the future of whatever. I was just like wanting to make the next knife, you yeah. know, but yeah, I have my first knife. And then the first knives I ever sold, I sold my first two knives or my second and third knife, I should say, to uh, my math teacher and my science teacher at my science fair. <laughs> <laughs> I did a heat treating uh, project on steel, uh, 1095 steel, when I was uh, like 12. That's and, awesome. Uh, they bought them for 20 bucks a piece. And, That's a uh, win. And then it's probably 25 years later, they both gave them back to me. So oh, no shit. Those and, uh, some of those old knives have come back to me. And it's, I literally just bought this one back. So I made this one. This was my first hidden tang ever. And I loved it, but I was so broke. Yeah. And I think the guy, I don't remember how much I sold it for. I think like $300. And I even made a post when I sold it on my Instagram. And I said, one day I'll get this knife back. And it got sold in three, like in Grizzly Forge enthusiast groups, which mm -hmm. I didn't even know existed because I don't have Facebook. Yeah. And I reached out, I found the paperwork, reached out to the guy who had it. He was like, dude, I'm so sorry. Like, I sold that a long time ago. And I put a big post on my Instagram. Like, if anyone has this knife, I promised myself one day I'd buy it back. Because mm -hmm. it just, I don't know why, I just loved this knife. Yeah. And uh, yeah, tracked it down. All these, like, collectors of mine, like, started going through and posting in all the enthusiast groups and found it. And I just got it back, like, maybe two months ago. That's fucking awesome. But it's like, there are yeah. all those little pieces that you, I don't keep any of my knives like I make now mm. I do one anniversary knife a year and then I'll do an exact replica of it though as close as I can yep. and I'll raffle that off and keep it but that's the only knives of my work I keep except for some of these old ones that I try to buy back now yeah. that were important or meant something 
And then the other cool thing is collectors that have some of my work without maker's mark on it are reaching out and getting me to write a validation and sign it and say, Hey, I did make this. Yeah. And it's, it's really cool because there's some of these knife collectors are something special. It's a super cool culture. And that's why I was pumped by you're both here to get you on and just kind of build a little education on it. People don't realize yeah. what that is. Like when I really got into it and started meeting collectors, especially mm-hmm. guys who spend the money they do on like Master Smith's work, mm-hmm. it's unreal. Like you'll see these people walk through Blade Show and people at tables start like getting all ready and nervous, freak out and clean all their stuff up because they know X collector is. Oh, I see. Right now. I got gotcha. you. We're talking. We're. I've seen people drop hundred thousand dollars at Blade. Yeah. Okay. So that's some stats that I want to pull. Well, number one, favorite knife you've ever made, regardless of price or anything. Just favorite knife. Um, uh, I. You know, a couple of different things. I made a spear, a three blade spear where the blades where takedown came off. It was a 12 foot long spear uh, with a huge spearhead on it. There's a book called arms and armor of Iran. And it's like a book of like the, the knives and swords and maces and some of the savage yeah. weapons that were made like on the Arabian peninsula in the Persian area, like Super hundreds cool. of years ago. And all I can imagine is what those wars and stuff must have been like back then. Savage. Fighting each other and just the savage shit they made to kill each other. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like all hand to hand. Oh, that was my favorite thing as a kid, like going like the medieval areas and like museums and shit. I've seen these weapons, like yeah. the ones that we have on our walls and stuff. Like it was made to kill someone. I had the chance to go to the UK and they have just a castle completely full of the armor and the swords and all the maces. It's fucking was phenomenal. The collection? It was. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, 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 a shake in the Middle East flew me to the Wallace collection. Oh, shit. Met him there and showed me a sword that was like 200 years old. I got yeah. to hold it with the white gloves and do the whole thing. And then oh, I made wow. Made one for him, um, you know, as United Arab Emirates um, made that sword and um, pretty cool guy, actually. And we, I did a couple swords and a bunch of daggers for him. And um, he was, you know, big hunter and stuff like that. But uh, that was a that was a cool experience. A little kid from a little logging town started making knives and baseball. And then he he flew me to Istanbul, Turkey, and I met with the, the consul. <laughs> and they, I had a bodyguard take me to the uh, Top Capi Palace. and. And uh, the blue mosque, just to see it. Here, I'm this white kid, and I don't even know what a mosque <laughs> is. It's like crazy, weird, like surreal things. But uh, I got to see a lot of that stuff. Like that Wallace collection is just unbelievable. Yeah. You know, the other place, like the Metropolitan Museum in New York, mm-hmm. you just can go into that Arms and Armor collection and just see the stuff that they 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 made without power tools and um, you know the stuff they were they were arming you know, their people with was incredible. And then the chain mail and all the, the oh, helmets yeah. and beautiful to watch. Yeah. Super crazy. Um, did this, I've, I've built, I've built some folders that were really cool. Some daggers. Um, pretty proud of, uh, I won the best Damascus award at the blade show when I was 19, um, made a Damascus blade that was pretty rad. Yeah. Um, those were kind of some accomplishments. That was a, an accomplishment where, um, I won that award and I'd been seeking, you know, that, that, um, uh, praise from the guys that had taught me mm-hmm. come before that's the biggest knife show in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's the most coverage. And again, back then, no internet, you know, we, we talk about these days, the connectivity that we can have with makers and collectors and whatnot with Instagram. But like we'd go to five, six shows a year 
and you wouldn't see her. You might talk to a knife maker on the phone, but you wouldn't see each other for months. And then you would show back up and it's like a family reunion at every, and you would see how everyone was improving. Oh yeah. Every day you can, I can see how Lucas is improving almost every day on the internet. Right. I wouldn't see anything. And you would see one guy or another guy just like, like six months later, like, holy shit, this guy's just crushing. And it pushed you to like go home and get in your little shop and just go after it. Yeah. Um, but when I won that award, that was a big one for me because, um, kind of was to me at 19, it was like this validation of like, well, I'm an adult now. Like I'm winning awards at the biggest knife show in the world. It's crazy. Um, so that was, that was pretty cool. But so that, that knife, if you ask about just, it meant a lot to me. Um, but yeah. And, and those awards are super subjective. Uh, doesn't maybe necessarily mean it was the best one there, but it, it won the award. So it's first cool yeah. you got first yeah let's just call it what it is don't down talk yeah. it it's fucking super rad yeah so <laughs> alright Lucas what's your favorite yeah. knife uh, the bone dagger yeah uh, did a dagger about seven months ago where we used a human tibia as mm-hmm. the handle uh, used a tibia on that and had the dangle on the back end was the big toe uh, <laughs> and then Imperial Joey at Imperial Leatherwork uh, one of my good buddies he did a stunning sheath that lined up with it perfectly Edwin, the master roaster here, was able to get the leg. Uh, we got a retired medical cadaver from a local medical school here. What was his name? Or her name? Her name? It was a female, actually. Was it? No cool. idea. They don't tell you. We just got the whole leg. All, it was like right off a skeleton that you'd see in like, you know, health class. Yeah. That's um, wild. Did, that is uh, super wild. I reached out to my lawyer, did a little research, made sure that Probably smart. there wasn't yeah. anything. But yeah, it was repurposing mm-hmm. a cadaver that was used for education. Yep. And it tied into educational purposes. So I <laughs> was able to actually make it. But yeah, that's probably probably one of my favorite pieces because I like really pushing the envelope. I hadn't seen a ton of guys using human bones to make knives. And, you know, just one of those like, what can I do that's different? Yeah, fuck yeah. Uh, same with like the knife on the table, like this one I did with uh, Tory Gunstone Creations, who's now out of my shop here as well. Yeah. Um, met him on Instagram and uh, just started talking. I was like, hey, dude, uh, I'm, you know, kind of close to the guys at Black Rifle. I want to do a really cool collaboration piece. Do you want to do it with me? And he was like, oh, hell yeah, dude. And Tori is probably one of the best resin guys out there. I was like, can you figure out how to put coffee beans in a handle? Yeah. And he had to learn how to stabilize them and everything because there can't be any air or anything in them. So yeah, he did, uh, I forged the blade. He did the handle. We did Black Rifle Coffee Beans in it. Uh, Joey from Imperial Leatherwork, he did the sheath. And then Josh, uh, Josh Source Rex, uh, he is now one of our lead art designers and art guys here at Black Rifle, yeah. but he wasn't plugged in here yet. He had already been started doing really amazing photography for the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like getting bags, he was a huge supporter of it. And I had seen his work and was like, dude, your photography is unreal. We all make this. Will you take the photos? Yeah. And we had none of us had ever met each other. I just hit everyone up on Instagram. And to this day, it's probably one of my favorite pieces. We raffled it off and I made one for Evan, which is here, and then one to go for sale. And even the story behind that, we just did a raffle. I promoted it and then it started off. I thought I wasn't even going to take a cut on it because I didn't think it would raise enough money. I was just going to pay all them and split Mm -hmm. it even three ways. But it ended up going for $7,000. And four people were bidding against each other and jacking it up. And then at the last second, because I didn't, I didn't know about sniper rules. I didn't know anything when it came to auctions. 
And so at the last second, I mean, it, it went up another thousand. It broke 8,000 in the mm. last three seconds. Oh, wow. So I had to go back. I called all four of them. Like, I don't know what's happening. None of us expected it to happen. And the girl that technically won it, I reached out to her, turns out, and, and, and it was so nerve wracking because saw that she won, reached out to her. And I was like, Hey, can I get a phone number to call you? She was like, I can't use a phone. Can you use WhatsApp? And Instantly, I'm like, I just got scammed. Hmm. Like, this is someone in another country. I'm scammed. And then she answered. I called her, and it was a female Marine in Afghanistan. Oh, shit. And she had stayed up. It was like 4 a.m. then. Yeah, yeah. She had stayed up to do it, and she's like, oh, my God, I'm so excited. Yeah. My first question was, how do you have $7,000 yeah, <laughs> yeah. to buy a knife? I didn't expect this. And she goes, well, I've been deployed X amount of time. I really wanted to support a veteran company, and I loved your work. So... I'm emotional at this point. Yeah. This I got so the gooseies. Cool. I got well, the gooseies. I reached out to the three guys and I was like, hey. And I was like, thank God it's someone cool. Because now I was afraid they were going to be mad at me mm-hmm. that it was so close. And they obviously really wanted it. So I reached out and I was like, I'm going to make all of you a knife regardless as a thank you. But this is unreal. The guy, when he heard the story, the main guy who, to this day, I don't know his real name. He Hmm. goes by an alias on Instagram, and he's one of the franchisees with Black Rifle. But he heard about it, and he goes, oh, fuck that. I'm not letting a Marine pay for that. No way. I'm still going to pay for it. So he paid the $7,000 for the knife. I call her back. She starts bawling her eyes out. Yeah. Because now this guy's doing it because she's deployed. So then she turned around and donated all the money to a veteran nonprofit that she was going to give me. And I'm just sitting on my porch, like, and you can go, it's embarrassing at this point, but you can go way back on my Instagram and I'm just on my porch, just crying. Yeah, man. I don't know what is happening right now or how this all happened, but this is unbelievable. I can't believe the support. And since then, at least twice a month, something like this happens where somebody will buy a knife from me and my knives aren't the cheapest Mm -hmm. and they'll reach out and say, keep that. I want you to give it to a veteran or, Hey, don't worry about that. Give that to someone else. So it happened this morning up on the Hill. We had a a guy buy two of our knives. Um, He doesn't want his name out there, but I'll just say it's Bob. Mm. It's actually his name, but I won't say his last one. Thank you, Bob. Um, But he, he said, Hey, and he kind of explained, I either want a kid or, uh, a lady, but he's like, look for a couple or a kid that maybe can't afford it. Maybe they're here. They spent all their money to come shoot, but they can't afford maybe a knife, but you can tell they really want one. And sure enough, we had a kid come up today wearing his backpack. He's by himself. He was 11 um, with his little bow. He just got done shooting and he was just looking at the knives just with like that look in his eye. Yep. Like I was when I was 11. <clears throat> and I asked him a few questions and whatnot and you could just tell. And I was like, I got, I got something for you, bud. And so I kind of told him, I said, there was a guy here today that bought a couple knives and he told me to find somebody. And I said, how would you like one of those knives? And he, I mean, he, you could tell he was just like, his eyes were just huge. You couldn't believe it. Yeah. There's people like that. It's such a giving community. Well, it's Um, addicting. It's, and it's hard to talk about without being like trying to toot your horn, like you're doing something special, but it is the coolest feeling on earth when people do that. And because of how hardcore my followers are, and Mm. especially like my collectors, I do that with a lot of block people, like people who stabilize and make these blocks of wood we use for our handles Mm -hmm. that can change the whole knife. The reason I'm able to sell my knives because well, I think a lot of my handle work. So this guy will spend all day stabilizing this block, doing all this and he'll sell it for 
70 bucks for, you know, a gorgeous block of wood that can make a knife. Right. So I'll see a block by a new stabilizer or something and I'll post it on my story and just be like, hey, whoever uh, wins this guy's raffle or auction on his block, I'll make you a knife for 70 bucks. Oh, shit. And then they'll go and buy the block of wood. I think the last one went for $1,500 because my collectors, like a block that he would only sell for maybe 70 bucks, my collectors know they're going to get a guaranteed custom knife for me because I don't do customs. Right. They'll get a guaranteed custom knife for me for $75 if they win this guy's auction. Which is, so then they yeah. just start bidding on each other. And then now I get to build an amazing friendship with someone who I supported. And it just, I just see how all that works because those guys who all three of those guys who were in on this bidding, three guys, one female, I'm still talked to to this day. And two of them have become my biggest collectors. One of which, at this point, he spent close to $30,000 with our company. Wow. Well, that's that's why I said earlier, it comes back to these people are buying into who you are. I Frankly, I think that's why Black Rifle grew the way it did. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, they were, they were watching the Core 4. They were watching the videos. They were listening to the podcasts. Um, you know, they were seeing what Evan was building. You know, just a guy from a small logging town in Idaho and... Um, built this brand. And and frankly, I think it's why Montana Knife Company is growing this way. People are buying into the brand and it's the people. And, um, you know, same thing, like Lucas has a super active following, our following, whether it's my personal following or our, our Montana Knife Company one. Um, you know, Will Stelter up in Montana, we had some flooding down around Yellowstone Park this spring from a bunch of snow melt and rain, um, wiped out some downtown areas of like small towns like Gardner, Montana and Red Lodge, Montana. Will called me up and he's like, do you want to do a collab and like raise some money for, for those guys? And I saw it. We're 80,000. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And I I said, we were going to do like a t-shirt or something trying to figure out what to do. So we did a t-shirt in conjunction with the knife and you can't do raffles online with gambling Hmm. laws and stuff. Cause actually at your following amount. Yeah. And I got shut down last year because I did a raffle for a veterans event we were doing. And we, we, I was just raffling off a knife that I made with Brandon Lilly and Laura Zara and the state Montana state gambling association calls me and he's like, dude, I feel bad, but you can't do that. And I had to shut it down. We raised enough money to still fly in like 15 vets and we taught them how to forge. Yeah. Um, but we could have raised a lot more. We just got shut. So this year we kind of went around it. We sold shirts and we just, you buy a shirt and then you'll, you'll just be entered and we'll just give that knife to somebody randomly. Well, in the end, we ended up raising 82,000 bucks. Yeah. Um, and that's going to those small, small areas in Montana. So the point is, is it's not that Will and I did something that special. It's that our followings, Will's following, my following, the people who shared it online on their followings, like those people are active and they're they're willing to like really help. And they see that we're trying to help and, and do well, it's good. It's a real so, community. Yeah. Man, that's what I was going to say. Like it's such an inspirational community. And then the support within, you know, the actual loyalty. Yeah, 100%. Isn't, that isn't. And I mean, that goes that's not a normal to, thing. And yeah. I mean, that even before Black Rifle existed, mm-hmm. Jared Taylor stuck his neck out for me at this point. It would have to be eight to nine years ago. Mm-hmm. I had just got out of the military, was going through the hardest times right when my wife left me. Yeah. It was the, everything in my life I lost all at once. Uh, Drinking Bros was not even at a thousand members. So this goes way back. That's way back, yeah. And it was Jared, Rocco, Matt, and Evan at Mm -hmm. the time. And I reached out to all three or all four of them on Facebook, wrote a huge message and was like, 
I don't really know why I'm writing this, but you're the only people I feel like I can talk to. Uh, I just, because I was bodyguarding at the time and I just lost everything. Over $150,000. My client, we just had been held at gunpoint by 40 federal agents in Nashville, Tennessee. I told the story on the last one. Yeah, yeah. So literally lost everything. And I just, I had nothing and I didn't know where to go. And I didn't even know what I was asking for. I just knew I needed to talk to somebody and Jared replied back to me literally within minutes and was like, Hey dude, what's your number? Yeah. And I gave him my number. He was like, where do you live? And I was like, I'm in Woodstock, Georgia. And he goes, well, Terminus, our art 15, where we make our t-shirts is there. Give me a minute and hung up the phone. Call me back. He said, you have a job interview tomorrow. Fuck, and man. it was so making cool. like folding t-shirts for 14 bucks an hour. And I only had it for two weeks because mm-hmm. my contract got picked up and that's when I went with triple canopy. Yep. And, uh, but when he did that, and these were, they were starting to blow up. Matt was already getting really big. Jared, like everything was just taking off. Black Rifle was just getting going. And uh, that stuck with me. And when Jared did that for me, there's nothing I wouldn't do for him to this day. Yeah. Awesome, um, dude. And it just, it builds that loyalty. He didn't need to do that. He didn't need to check that DM. He didn't. And that essentially made me what I am today and how I like to handle this is if there's anything I can do by a repost or a share or like it's the day of social media, like a share, like for let's say Rogan, mm-hmm. like Rogan shares one thing of yours and it could literally change your life. Yeah. Now we're nowhere near that, but just because you aren't doesn't mean you still can't change someone's life. Right. Who's Joe Rogan? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Who's <laughs> haven't heard of him. I don't know. Never, never heard of her. guys, <laughs> but no, it just, it built that loyalty and it, it meant so much to me. And it's not like I was going to kill myself or anything, but just knowing I had that support and that someone would take the time to stick their neck out for me and get me a $14 an hour job. Yeah. I was black rifle from that day on. Yeah, absolutely. And knew I needed to do something. I told my wife at the time, I was like, I don't know what it is, but I will be a part of this company. And I thought for a time it was going to be videography. I got super into that, sucked at it. And they had Logan and everyone who was so good at it. And I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, it's not that route. I just knew if I was patient, I would find a way to bring worth and be able to help this company out. I just didn't know how it was going to be, but I knew it was going to happen. And then fast forward, here we are here. My forge gets to be here and everything. And I built this amazing relationship with these guys. But honestly, it stems to that message from Jared when he stuck his neck out for me and there was it for me. Like, I was like, I'll do anything for these guys. That's fucking awesome. You guys are both inspirational. I love it. I love hearing about the community that's both, you know, supporting within and then also these, you know, contributors that are hooking each other up or, or like the Marine overseas and people stepping in and just really laying it on the line and like showing their heart and their caring and their compassion and everything else. It's, yeah. it's awesome, man. Focus on yourself. It's right? crazy how far you'll go. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. pretty awesome. Super cool. Yeah, Joe Maynard, another guy, he was a Blackhawk <laughs> helicopter pilot, came up to my shop. Knife making really did save his life. Um, started forging and 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 making knives uh, <clears throat> after some tough times. And he came to that veterans event to help teach at it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hosted that veterans deal just because I'm not a veteran, but I know there's enough knife makers out there that are that I've I've heard their stories enough that that going out and like Lucas said, you you know the therapeutic thing or whatever you want to say, but it really truly is like. Hell you go, yeah. you, you heat that steel up and you beat on it for two hours. You're not going to think about anything else. Yeah. You're just going to get lost in it. And um, you can't, or you'll mess up. You know, there were about 20 guys at that deal that we put on, but there were definitely two or three where it just like sunk into them hard. And, um, you know, 
then Joe turned around and put a shop together and we helped donate a little bit of stuff. And one of those veterans that was at my shop donated a whole shop to the guy. And wow. now, he's, now he's making, now he's making knives. And so now he wants to put them some stuff together and, and earn some money and then pay it forward to another veteran. And I was going to say, pay it forward. It seems like yeah. that's what it the community's doing. Going, man. Yeah, it just cool. keeps going. Yeah. yeah. Super cool. And then so many people want to see us go at each other's throats or, you know, I, it, I don't really like Lucas, but not I can tell. Yeah. yeah. I'm just here yeah. for his followers. <laughs> yeah. And everything I say just goes right over his head. So, uh, yeah. So tall. I, I, he basically told me that without his social media coaching, that you wouldn't have the social media following that you have right now. Yeah. <laughs> now we weren't going to talk about that. But, but well, no, it's, it's sad to see so many people want to see that. And it's like, you're not going to break. Like, you could try and talk all the shit you want now. Ah, that's the these fucking are, malicious keyboard warriors with Cheeto fingers in their mom's basement trying to, we're yeah, all, fuck off. We're all doing rad stuff yeah. together. We'll collab all the time. It's just, I don't know. It's it's really, really, really cool not seeing people worrying about mine, 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 mine. Yeah. But instead, hey, what can we do together? You think we can do something rad? And it just, it just keeps going. Well, and it is important if you do learn something from somebody. I don't care if it's, you know, you're a painter or a knife maker or whatever. Um you know, the one thing always growing up that was instilled with me with those old guys is, you know, they'll, they'll show you stuff, but if you implement it, one, put your own twist on it and yep. two, give credit, Yeah. you know? So, you know, if he shows me how to do something, it's like, Hey, I, you know, and it, it can just be a passing small, like usually if it was a blade magazine article, I'd always try to mention Rick Dunkerley who taught me to make knives or Don Fogg or Harvey Dean, these guys, you know, that were kind of legends um, and some that still are. Um, but it was like, give credit and say, Hey, yeah, like Rick showed me how to do this. And then I didn't just copy exactly what he was doing. Then I took it and put my twist on it and like tried to make it my own where now you're not just, I'm not just making that knife right there. Right. You know? Um, so it's, it's important to try to do your own thing and figure out your own style. And that can take a while. It can take years to like try different things, try to make a knife look like Lucas's cause he's, he's who you're following, but then try to make one that looks like mine and try to make one that looks like Morocco. And somewhere in there, you're going to start to figure out like your own kind of melding of styles and what's your style, you know? And when you reach out to those makers and which I did in the beginning, cause I've always been so scared to, cause I'm easily influenced, especially when it comes to this, like mm-hmm. when you look at someone, you see it start drifting into your work. Yeah. And early on I'd reach out and be like, Hey, I know you do stock removal. Can I try to forge that style? And when I would reach out to these guys or tag them on Instagram, even when it was nothing, like a hundred followers, it meant so much to them. And then they would reach out and be like, hey man, I saw what you did. Yeah. Try to do it this way. And, oh, so cool. and it was yeah. like something, it's their style. Mm-hmm. But I did enough of a twist or I wasn't selling it. I was just practicing something. But then it just builds that camaraderie where you're not stealing someone's work. Well, it just seems like a really supportive community, yeah. you know, because it, it's an art. And at the end of the day, they're they're trying to, you know, coach you or help you. Or that's it's very unique, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, with this day and age, everyone's so cutthroat and everything else. It's awesome to hear. Most of us just want to see people do it. Yeah. Like I tell I tell people that all the time. I'll have guys who show I was like, hey, I know this kind of looks like dude, you're good. Like yeah. have fun. It's not even close to my work. Like, thank you so much for reaching out, but I'm just glad you're actually trying. Yeah. And if you are being copied, flattery is a compliment. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, and and honestly, the guys that are so worried about um, you know, hiding secrets and whatnot. They, mm-hmm. They're clearly um, obviously nervous about their own abilities because like if some guy starts making knives today and he starts copying my stuff, if he catches me, that's my own fault. Like, yep. Yeah, like, fair enough. Um, you know, I want to be pushed. I want to learn how to 
do new techniques and, you know, I'm doing different stuff here with this Montana knife company. It's more of the production stuff and trying to make knives that are super quality, but also affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also look forward to doing, getting back into making more customs. And I want to keep that side of it going because it's inspirational to see where some of these guys have taken some of this stuff. I mean, from where it was in the nineties when I started to now, it's mind boggling. Yeah, And there's so much stuff that it's almost like witchcraft stuff back then that like guys thought that, you know, forging the blade made it better and you were packing the steel and packing the edge and like all these different, like I, I see things that we were thinking back then. And now you realize it's more metallurgy and heat treating and um, you know, what you do with the steel, but it's, it's cool to see the evolution of where it came from because knife making was basically lost until the seventies. Um, this in the seventies, Steve Schwarzer, Don Fogg, hmm. Daryl Meyer, there was about six or seven guys that really brought it back. And, um, you know, we, we've all seen Damascus shotgun barrels and, and stuff from the 1800s and early, early 1900s from Europe and places like that. And Sheffield, England, and, um, you know, across Japan with samurai swords and all that stuff. But it, here in the U.S., um, it really didn't come back until the, until the seventies, until those guys started experiencing, uh, experimenting with things. And, and then in the early eighties, it started growing and they started the American Bladesmith Society and they started actually sharing with each other. And it grew from those seven or eight guys through Bill Moran and some of these other guys into, you know, the American Bladesmith Society that I became a master smith in their motto is to preserve and promote the art of the forged blade. And that's awesome. That, that, that yeah. was the whole point of the organization was to share, preserve it. Don't let it get lost. Don't let that craft get lost and then promote it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's the whole, that's the whole point of that organization. And it's, it's grown from that to God, it's members all so over much. the, all over the world. So it's pretty cool. It's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. Where can they find you if they don't know? Uh, Montana knife company. That's my production company. And then, uh, my personal Instagram is at Josh Smith knives um, and our website. So yeah. Grizzly underscore forge on Instagram, no other social medias outside of that. And uh, the grizzly forge.com on the website. Super inspirational. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you guys coming in and talking about some shit. Appreciate, appreciate you. Hell yeah. And now I think it's time for a barbecue. Let's yeah, do it. let's do it. All right. It was fun. Thanks guys. Always. That concludes today's training. Any questions? Woo! Drum titties, boy!